Welcome everyone to today's show. Before we begin, I want to share with you a sponsor of ours that has become a big player in today's working world. LinkedIn is a site for hiring and being hired. And as we'll discuss today, every interaction and chance experience you have will impact your identity. So finding the right team for any project is key. For me, working with the best and brightest is the only way I engage in any project. And LinkedIn is sharing with our listeners an offer once again. Please consider visiting linkedin.com slash infinite and get $50 off your first job post. linkedin.com slash infinite to get $50 off your first job post. linkedin.com slash infinite. Terms and conditions apply. Good manners will help toward a pleasant, happy day. Drop five pounds a week. Spray away your flabby ab muscles. It seems like everywhere you look, someone is telling you who to be. One pill can turn your body from this to this. Your eyes can be made more beautiful in seconds. Advertisers, social media, books and movies, even your friends and family. I felt my life was empty. It had no meaning. And most of all, yourself. So, who are you? I want you to take a moment and think of three descriptions for yourself. Adjectives, passions, or anything else that forms your own idea of your identity. Write them down if you can, or just remember them. Mine would be explorer of consciousness, street poet, and vagabond. But are these really me? At the end, we'll revisit our adjectives and see if anything has changed. You're not solely what's coming out of your brain. We've got to empower people. We've got to get them to the point that they believe that they have the power to make the change to that point where they really feel like, yeah, if I stick with this, I can change my brain. I can change my body. I'm Deepak Chopra, and this is Infinite Potential, where we explore what makes us conscious beings and why it matters that we are. Today, we're talking with Dr. Rebecca Gladding, co-author of the book, You Are Not Your Brain, The Four-Step Solution for Changing Bad Habits, Ending Unhealthy Thinking, and taking control of your life. Dr. Gladding got her degree in psychiatry at UCLA and is an expert in anxiety, depression, and mindfulness. She currently lives in Hawaii, where presumably it's a little easier to live mindfully. I'd love to know a little bit about your life. Where did you grow up and what made you go to medical school and especially this area that we call neuropsychiatry right now. What got me into medicine was just a love of science. So I was a biochemistry major undergrad solely because I liked it. And like most people, I wanted to help in some way. And so I thought, oh, medical school, this will be a, a great way to combine those things. And in my third year, I was doing a rotation at San Francisco General and we had a patient with neurosyphilis. 
And I got... So unusual these days, isn't it? Indeed. You know, this man had delusions, he had hallucinations, and to see how the physical process could affect our perception, and then vice versa, how our anxiety could create physical symptoms in the body. And so uh, it was very interesting for me to see how an infection could cause psychosis was just fascinating to me. And that's what really got me into psychiatry. You know, you have a very interesting title to your book, You're Not Your Brain. We'll get to the four-step solution. But what do you mean by this title, You're Not Your Brain? I'm using that phrase also in my talks, maybe for another reason. Right. Well, what we mean by that is you're not the collection of thoughts or unhelpful messages that are in your brain. So the things that are causing anxiety, depression, what we call deceptive brain messages, you're not solely what's coming out of your brain. And so that's what we're trying to get people to do is understand that you can separate unhelpful thoughts, unhelpful behaviors from something more about who you are. Well, let's jump in. If you're not your brain, who are you? Well, it's a good question, right? I mean, in the book, we use the term true self. As more time has passed in my own life, my own education and experience, I I think a better way to describe true self is actually true nature. If we're not these thoughts, if we're not these different unhelpful characteristics, say, if we don't have greed, if we don't have envy, what's left? And what I think's really left is a genuine desire to connect that's kind of for me where it where it's at. So the way I've thought about this, and I want to know if you agree, mm-hmm. the way I've started to think about the brain, and I had my own training in neuroendocrinology, is that the brain is the physical correlate of what I would call the conditioned mind. So... I'm born in India. Yeah. And before I learn language, I have no constructs. I only know shapes and colors and sounds and textures and smells. And then uh, society starts to create the conditioned mind. I'm told you're Indian, you're male, you're uh, economic background, your father comes from an upper middle class family. And then, of course, I start education. I go to school, I watch movies, I read books, and I slowly create a personality Mm -hmm. for myself. Before I created this personality, it was just a potential for experience. But once I've started experiencing things, Mm -hmm. and once they start to be interpreted with for me by society at large and then I start identifying with that conditioned mind Mm -hmm. the brain basically represents that conditioning or the conditioned mind yeah it's adopted it It, it, the brain has been trained that that's who you are that those are the things you're supposed to do Mm -hmm. but my question would be what's beyond the conditioned mind right Mm -hmm. Because the conditioned mind, to me, is still a series of deceptive brain messages. It's Mm -hmm. still 
the rules, as you're saying, of society or parents or expectations, they're, they're the things that are that. They are conditioned, right? So absolutely, the brain is executing the instructions of the conditioned that. mind. Absolutely. So let's take that a little bit further. Prior to conditioning, Mm-hmm. is what I think would be your true self. Indeed. And if we track any thought mm-hmm. back to its source, we'll see that most of our thoughts aren't even our own. They're recycling the conditioned collective mind. Correct. So, you know, when I have a thought, whatever thought it is, I ask myself, first of all, is it true? Yeah, true that. Are you kidding me? Secondly, why is it true? Because I said so. Absolutely ridiculous. And is it even mine or is it just recycling through me? Everyone is entitled to my opinion. Am I right or am I right? I know you're listening. You better believe it. Why, mommy? It's just something I read in the newspaper this morning. Right or watched on television, or was influenced by a book, or what I heard. In greed, yeah. And that is what ultimately traps you, right? That you become uh, a victim of conditioning, and the brain actually has neural networks that represent that conditioning. So how do we change this conditioning? How do we overcome this? Well, the most direct way I know of is through mindfulness, through learning how to become aware of the fact that your brain's doing this, becoming aware of what the conditioning is, and then making a decision to not believe those things, to choose your own path, so to speak. Um, And you can do that only once you become aware of it. Whatever that thought is. Many times they represent stereotypes, you know, Mm -hmm. prejudices, all kinds of ideas of, I'm attractive, not attractive, on and on. Mm -hmm. We are being sabotaged by thoughts that weren't originally ours. Correct. It's about becoming aware that these things are there and that, as you're saying, most of them are coming from external sources that are not representative of anything other than someone else's belief or assertion. Now, in your book, you talk about a four-step solution. Mm -hmm. Tell me about that. So what you're calling conditioned mind, I'd call deceptive brain messages in the book. But the idea is that step one is relabel. You can't change what you can't see. So relabel is literally just putting a mental note out there, thinking, worrying. It's it's what you do in, in a meditation. You're bringing your awareness toward what's happening. Step two is to reframe. So that's when you're talking about kind of, is this true? Why do I think this? And for us, the shortcut is this is a false message. This is coming from my brain. It's conditioning. It's programming. But it's false in some way. And where the real change happens is in step three, which is refocus. Where you're focusing your attention on what really matters to you. Rather than giving credence to the conditioned thought, the deceptive brain message, you say, no, this is false. If I focus on this, I only make the brain circuitry associated with this stronger. So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to refocus on something that's beneficial to me, whether it's 
talking to a friend, walking your dog, doing your work, whatever it is. And then step four is revalue, where you really start to see that this was never something that was important. It was never something that you had to take at face value. And so the more you do that, the more you enhance your ability to be mindful, and you really start to change your relationship to those conditioned thoughts. I just want to pause the interview here to make sure everyone got the four steps. Relabel, reframe, refocus, and revalue. But I also want to bring your attention to an idea in here that thoughts essentially carve neural pathways in you. So the more you think a conditioned or even false thought, the deeper the trench. Getting out of that trench, changing the path, is what Dr. Gladding's four steps are about. But how do we create true thoughts, not just new false thoughts? When we come back, we'll have some new thoughts for you. We've been discussing how every choice you make and every interaction you have can shape how you see yourself. And while I have no doubt that the mind affects the body, we cannot forget that the body also affects the mind. Chronic diseases such as depression, anxiety, obesity, and even cancer are linked to and partly caused by chronic inflammation, which in turn is caused by what our microbiome does with the food we eat. Viome analyzes the functions of our gut microbiome with artificial intelligence and deep learning techniques. Go to viome.com slash Deepak and get 50% off the regular price. As my guest and I are discussing today, you have the tools to upgrade your reality, both in mind and in body. Now, let's return to our conversation. Have you been to the bookstore lately? It seems the self-help section only gets bigger and stranger. Dating for under a dollar, 301 ideas. Dear friends, I can tell you if it's under a dollar, it's probably useless. The Zen of farting. Well, I would have called it the explosion of intestinal gas. That's more Zen. It's not always depression. Listen to your body, discover core emotions, and reconnect with your authentic self. Actually, I've read this book, and it's pretty good. The Seven Spiritual Laws of Success, a practical guide to the fulfillment of your dreams by Deepak Chopra. Who is that guy? It seems we need a lot of help, and there's nothing wrong with that. My books are on this shelf along with those of my guest today, Dr. Rebecca Gladding. So why is it that so many of us turn to these books now? And how can we get what we're looking for from them? These days, if you go to a bookstore, mm -hmm. you find all these books on self-help, uh, improvement. Mm. I think by bringing science and addressing these things um, in a way that is not only logical, but that can be documented. Right. And uh, measured makes a big 
difference? You know, if you look at where society is right now, we're so bombarded by social media, by short uh, news cycles. Right. Everything is very instantaneous. The names of the victims will be read in a ceremony. He was attacked by two men who shouted racial and homophobic slurs. A formal FBI investigation. I think the president is being a leader on this. Straight actor who says he will plead not guilty. We need something to get beyond it, because if you look at what a, a Buddhist would say, this is craving, right? We're craving for the next piece of information. We're craving for someone to like our post where we we feel incomplete. And so I think that's part of why people are so drawn to self-help, because there's something missing. There's an emptiness. There's a longing. There's something that feels off. I felt my life was empty. It had no meaning. I wasn't doing anything important with it. And so Where self-help is helpful, so to speak, is when it helps someone understand that there's another way, that it empowers them to take their lives into their own hands, sculpt their brains in the ways that they want. Where it's less helpful is where it just gives you a new identity. Oh, I, I have generalized anxiety disorder, and I have fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue, and Some uh, label. yeah, more and more labels, and and or telling you that you have more and more problems. So the more that we can kind of moderate that, take the best from this self help, from teaching people about thoughts and that they're not their brains or or whatever it might be, empowering them and educating them is fantastic. So give me an example of, say, if somebody comes to you, she's in her 50s, mm-hmm. she's overweight, doesn't have a happy marriage, mm-hmm. is low-grade um, chronic inflammation, has anxiety and insomnia, right. and takes out her depression by feeding herself with comfort foods, which only add to the inflammation in the body. Right. Take me through what you would do with this person? Well, I mean, you have to see where the person's at first. What it is, what I always try to do is find out what's going to motivate them. Because I can tell someone, do this, do that. But if they don't have an intrinsic um, meaning for themselves as to why they want to do it, uh, there's not much point in me telling them, well, you should stop eating French fries and eat more salad, right? So the first thing I try to do is find their motivation, find what is meaningful. Um, You know, for a parent, maybe it's that their behaviors are inadvertently being demonstrated to the child, and they don't want their kid to grow up acting the way they act. Maybe that's the motivation or or whatever it is. So for for this 50-year-old woman, mild depression, we're not talking about serious symptoms, but for mild depression, I'd encourage her to look at diet. How can we clean it up? Should she maybe go on an elimination diet to know what it is that really is causing inflammation for her, um, if she's willing to do that, because it's a commitment, and begin to talk to her about how she wants to see her life, what she wants. Is, Is this marriage mostly a good marriage and she needs to change a few things? Is it not working for her? Where do those changes need to begin? And I would do that rather than medication. 
because I feel like medication is a temporary fix. It's not changing the underlying issues in your life. And as you begin with her in those places, mm -hmm. including the practice of mindful awareness, right. which I presume you would introduce I would, yes, to of course. the patient right away, you can see what's happening in the brain too, right? Mm -hmm. The changes that are happening as a result of this kind of talk therapy right. or insight. Right. You can see changes that are as profound as with any medication. Absolutely. And my co-author's first set of research was about that, showing that in OCD, using this mindfulness-based four-step approach was as effective in changing the brain as medication for eight weeks. So we know that this can happen. Um, it takes persistence and motivation, but if you continue on a path of mindfulness, absolutely. One thing that I believe in is um, gratitude lists, yes, which uh, really begin to get people to focus on the good in life. Right. So I, I'm always asking patients morning and night, five things that you're genuinely appreciative Grateful. for. That's beautiful because I don't think you can be feeling gratitude and hostility at the same time. Right. So all these things which used to be thought to be very ephemeral, kind mm -hmm. of wishy-washy, <laughs> soft medicine yeah. now become very tangible and measurable. Absolutely. So let me ask you then, as we go a little bit down the rabbit hole, mm -hmm. would you agree that perception is a learned phenomenon? That, you know, we learn to perceive? You can perceive something as positive, negative, or neutral. And I think our background and conditioning tells us perceive it this way or perceive it that way. Where in reality, all that's happened is something happened. Right? We paste meaning onto things that may or not be there. So meaning was given to raw experience. Right. And then the meaning that we gave to it conditions both the mind and the brain. And, and the, our experience. And our experience of reality. Right. How does the brain then convert that electrical information into the experience of mind, body, brain, even the world. So what is consciousness then? At the end of the day, consciousness, I believe, and I have no scientific background for it, is something more than us. And I don't know how to describe that other than how do you describe intuition? How do you describe some experiences that you have where you just have this intrinsic knowing that I, I don't know how you would describe that as coming from the brain necessarily, but, but there's something there. And when you can tap into that, you get to a point where from a psychiatrist standpoint, if you are really in that intrinsic place, there's no anxiety, there's no depression, there's just purity. It's the unconditioned mind that is purely joyful, create. I think you look yeah. at a baby and you see that. Curiosity, wonder, mm -hmm. love, yeah. uh, compassion, playfulness. And that was what the Buddhists called the original mind, right? Right, exactly. And find go, going back to the original mind is a process of slowly deconstructing mm -hmm. all the labels I've given to this entity, Deepak Chopra. 
consciousness is somewhere else. It's something else. Where, I can't tell you. Well, since it doesn't have a form, yeah. maybe it has no location. It may not, yeah. But to say it's in the brain doesn't fit for me. Well, I'm glad that there's a qualified neuropsychiatrist who agrees <laughs> with me. <laughs> we are living in an age where data and information is developing a mind all of its own. And a company we are partnering with is trying to help us manage this ever-growing realm. NetSuite by Oracle is a business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy-to-use cloud platform. They manage sales, finance and accounting, orders and HR instantly, right from your desktop or phone. As I have watched many businesses grow, having proper software management can mean a great deal for a success. And right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights with a free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits at netsuite.com potential. That's netsuite.com potential. Today's conversation might be opening up some questions or concerns new to you, and that's all right. If you need someone else to work through those thoughts, Talkspace might be a useful app for you. Talkspace, as you might already know, is an innovative way to work with a therapist from wherever you are. It is also less expensive than traditional therapy, which makes it all the more accessible. They have more than 4,000 licensed therapists who are experienced in addressing the challenges we all face. To match with your perfect therapist for a fraction of the price of traditional therapy, go to Talkspace.com. Make sure to use the code DEEPAK to get $45 off your first month and to show your support for this show. That's DEEPAK and Talkspace.com. Now back to our conversation. We return with Dr. Rebecca Gladding, who's devoted her life to understanding and working with the human mind. And right now, we are talking about changing the mind. So, you know, it's been a long journey for me as well, Mm -hmm. as uh, someone who was trained in internal medicine and then neuroendocrinology to ultimately uh, realize that we are not our brain or our body or even our experience of the world. We see this kind of slow evolution into the different ways of looking at uh, what the brain is. Right. Where do you place uh, reflection and contemplation in this whole scheme of meditative experience and mindfulness, you know, people asking themselves, who am I? What's my true identity? Mm -hmm. What do I really want? Mm -hmm. What's my purpose? Are these helpful in changing neural networks and opening up other possibilities than the conditioned mind? Well, they can be depending on how you approach it. Mm -hmm. So, Again, if you approach it as, well, I'm this depressed person and nothing's ever going to change and, well, this is just who I am, right? 
and you go along that line, you're, you're just ingraining that further into the brain. But if you ask, is there another possibility? Is there another way I can live my life? Then, of course, you're, you're opening up the chance to, to really sculpt your brain and your life in, in the ways you want to. That's a very good expression, sculpt your brain. So I think your brain is initially created, of course, by your genes. Right. But then it's sculpted by who you think you are, right. your identity, and ultimately not only sculpted by experience, but the interpretation of experience right. sculpts the brain. Right. Which is pretty far out. <laughs> I think we're seeing a major understanding of the brain just through the internet right now we have mm -hmm. created a global brain right and uh, if you go to the internet you want to study the human condition right now mm -hmm. it's pretty messy right social injustice war terrorism right. eco-destruction climate change yeah and it's the collective brain right that needs to be re-sculpted right and we cannot re-sculpt it through technology, we can only re-sculpt it by going to the source of all experience, which is our innermost being, mm -hmm. which you call the true self. Right. There's something that neuroscientists and neuropsychiatrists talk about, long-term potentiation, mm -hmm. which is how the neurons connect with each other. Right. And if you repeat something frequently, then... In a way, the neurons that fire together, wire together, right. as the phrase goes. And then it becomes uh, almost automatic after a while. It's like driving a car. Mm -hmm. So your attitudes and your response to situations, circumstances, events, people, relationships, in most cases then are pretty automatized, right? Right. It's all running through the basal ganglia, the yeah. what we call the habit center in the brain. But right. yeah, it's it's happening without a lot of awareness. We've got to make sure that people understand that they can change this. Mm -hmm. We've got to empower people. We've got to get them to the point that they believe that they have the power to make the change, that it doesn't have to come from a, an external source like a doctor. It can really come from within getting people to that point where they really feel like, yeah, if I stick with this, I can change my brain. I can change my body. I've read that um, what happens in the first few years of life mm -hmm. probably influences you for the rest of your life. Right. I'm told that the first few years create everything that we call intelligence, especially when it comes to emotional intelligence mm -hmm. or social intelligence or how you see the world. We mirror the emotions and uh, every expression that we hear in our early childhood. Yeah, that's how most of us get through middle school and high school, right? <laughs> is is picking up on the social behaviors and cues of others and then following them for ourselves. It's, it's how we kind of assimilate into society. So a lot of parents ask me, you know, I grew up becoming a neurotic. Mm -hmm. because my parents were neurotic. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I went into analysis and then I became even more neurotic. <laughs> what do I do with my children? And I frequently tell me if this is good advice. I mm -hmm. tell them, 
you can't lecture to your kids or you can't train them but they're watching you right and they're mirroring your neurons so right. if you are in emotional distress then you're influencing their limbic brain we are monitoring and regulating and being monitored by and being regulated by each other's brains so what do we do for the future of our children so they don't repeat the cycle of neurosis and fear and anxiety and inflammation and depression because it's all connected I think the most important thing is to be cognizant of your reaction. So if you've ever seen a kid fall, scrape his knee, if a parent reacts hysterically, right, the kid goes, oh, no, something's wrong. I've, I've got to cry and I've got to get upset about this. Whereas if a parent reacts with, oh, that's okay, honey, come on, get up, we're going to go, the kid's like, okay, let's go. So... The environment in which you provide as far as, you know, allowing whatever emotions come up, I think the the most detrimental thing we do sometimes is tell someone, no, you don't feel that, or no, you shouldn't think that, you should think this, right? That's that conditioning. If instead you're inquisitive, oh, why do you think that? Why are you experiencing that? Just holding those same ideals we were talking about, loving, compassionate, being affectionate, all of those things are going to give that nurturing environment so that the kid feels safe and then, you know, that they grow up kind of experiencing the world as this place that will let them express however they need to be without all of that conditioning, without all of those rules or those expectations on them. Long time ago, somebody told me that all a kid needs is uh, four things, and they all begin with A. Mm -hmm. Attention, mm -hmm. deep listening, yep. appreciation, noticing their strengths, mm -hmm. affection, make sure that they feel safe and loved, mm -hmm. and acceptance. Don't try to change them into your idea of right. what the conditioned mind should be. Right. And uh, if you just do that, you mm -hmm. let the child unfold their potential instead of trying to mold their behavior. Right. And David Rico is a mindfulness uh, therapist who talks about this as well. He calls it the five A's. There's one more that he adds, which is allowing. Allowing. Allowing, which is allow your, whatever expression is there, allow that. Don't stifle it. And so absolutely. And what is good for a child is equally good for an adult, is equally good for relationships. Um, so I think it's fundamental for all of us. And it seems 50% of our daily experience of happiness is just determined by that conditioning. Right. Is the world a problem or is the world an opportunity? Right. Is this challenge a, a crisis or is this challenge an opportunity? Right. And it's totally based on childhood conditioning. It begins there. It you begins. can change it, but yes. it begins there, yeah. Would you give us two or three takeaways on the essential message of your work and your book? Sure. I, I think it's some of the things that we've talked about, which is however it is that you can learn to be more mindful, becoming more mindful and having a daily practice is really the most important. To me, meditating is like a mental gym. And so the more you're able to meditate, the more aware you become, the more mindful you become. And I tell this to patients all the time, I'd rather have you meditate for five minutes a day 
than for 30 minutes once a week. Because again, you're ingraining that habit into the brain. You're making changes to the brain in that way. They're more lasting. So that would be the first. The second is the gratitude lists that we were talking about. Anything that helps balance out your perspective so that it's less about what's wrong with the world or what needs to change and more about there are some wonderful things happening Gratitude opens the door to abundance. Absolutely. And then the third, I don't know that it's necessarily in the book, but if we really want to raise our level of awareness and our mindfulness and get more toward true self, true nature, I would encourage people to look at an aspect of their lives that they'd like to change. You know, an example from my life when I was in my late 20s, I became very aware of the impact of the fact that I could be um, a little bit flaky. So I would make an, a, make an appointment with someone. I'd say, yeah, let's meet, go to the movies, whatever it might be. And I was in medical school and I, you know, sometimes I'd be tired or something would happen. And I realized that there was a pain from that other person that I wasn't committing to this thing. And from my perspective that I was having to choose between taking care of myself or honoring my commitment. And so I really looked at that and I said, you know, how can I be more true to the ideals that I want to live by? And so I told myself, um, I will only make a commitment if I can absolutely do it. And if I can't do it, I'm going to tell the person, if I can come last minute, I will. That would be fabulous, but I don't want to, you know, tell you I'm coming and then not come. And so that one shift really created this spaciousness in my life because it was just full of integrity, full of um, uh, honoring both myself and the other person. And so I encourage people whenever they can to find something in their life that they would like different, that would feel good to make that change and to really start becoming mindful of it so that they can begin to change it in whatever way feels good for them. I think as we educate people both on mindfulness mm -hmm. and the scientific neural understanding behind that, right. they can really take this all the way, that right. you are sculpting your brain with every choice you make. Absolutely. And the more consciously you make those choices, the more consciously you change the structure and anatomy of how that brain is sculpted. And that's the premise of the book. You know, I love the title of your book, but it, it easily be called Resculpting the Brain by Resurrecting Your Soul. Beautiful. My very special guest, Rebecca Gladding, MD, neuropsychiatrist. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. So there you have it. You are not your brain. So if you're not your brain, then who are you? Remember those descriptions I asked you to recall from the beginning? Recall those now and wonder, is that really me? Where do these descriptions come from? You don't need to change your entire world today, but I implore you to jump down the rabbit hole yourself and see what you might find at the bottom. The possibilities are infinite.
If this episode connected with you, please share it with a friend and leave us comments so we get to hear from you. Now it's time for our gratitude list. Infinite Potential is produced by David Shadrach Smith and Julie Magruder and edited by Andy Jaskiewicz. The audio engineer is Bob Tabador. Carolyn Rangel is our associate producer and Serena Regan is the coordinating producer. We especially thank our guests, sponsors, interns, and everyone who has contributed to bring infinite potential to you. Our show is created and executive produced by David Shadrach Smith, Jan Cohen, and me. I'm Deepak Chopra, and this is Infinite Potential. <laughs>